Hey, no experts allowed family. We're on a break for a few weeks to recharge, so we wanted to highlight a few of our favorite episodes from the past year. Audio quality may vary, but the conversation quality is very high. Well, at least we think so. Enjoy, and we'll be back with a new episode on July 17th. I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others, instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story? And what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Hey, Jonathan. How are you? Seth, I think on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm about a B plus. That's pretty good. (laughs) I, (laughs) I think so, too. I always ask, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 7 being the highest, how are you? And then people just kind of freeze. They're just like, uh, what do I do with that? Context is important. Questions and words are important. Exactly. Before we get to our text today, I have a very important question. Oh, an especially important one. Okay. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to rewrite the rules for the game of life or rewrite the rules for the game of Monopoly? (laughs) Either one sounds so hard. (laughs) Like, have you ever invented a game? It's so difficult to make a game that's both fun and, like, remotely fair. (laughs) (laughs) True. Um, Okay. I appreciate the story about the origins of the game of Monopoly because I didn't I, I don't know the origins of the game of life. Uh, but the game of Monopoly was originally created by a Mennonite woman for her children to teach her teach them about the evils of capitalism. <laughs> I didn't know. And then that. Milton Bradley stole the idea from her and made it into the like multi-million dollar <laughs> empire. It kind of became self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. I don't know. I like both games, and I don't really want to change the rules that much. <laughs> I think I would change. I would think I would change the game of life to have more options, because it feels more just singular. This is just like basically one track. After you choose whether or not you go to college, there's not a ton of options, and like anyone can end up with a van full of like eight kids. <laughs> And, you know, a mortgage on a $900,000 house. And you're the artist. Yeah. (laughs) I I think I would go with life just to try to see if you can make it a little bit more varied than a single track. See, that's deeper than mine. Mine was Monopoly because I just want to try and make it a little bit shorter. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's so true. There are shorter versions. There are ways you can play Monopoly that make it shorter. I've played so many variations on Monopoly. 
like there are different rules about you know free parking does all the money go into the middle yeah true sometimes you get extra money if you land on go instead of just passing it oh i haven't played that you get four hundred dollars instead of two hundred wow but yeah i've played a shortened version where either you just you start like randomly dealing properties at the beginning so you could either like everyone gets five Everyone gets just three. Some, I've played sometimes where we had to play really fast, so we just dealt them all <laughs> and see and so, see whose draw was luckiest. Yeah, Monopoly is always one of those games that you end up quitting early. Yeah. So yeah, I guess some shorter rules would be would be a nice addition. Having decided that important question, would you read our passage for today? I would be happy to. This is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 from the modern English version. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brothers, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my beloved. I exhort Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. I ask you also, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let everyone come to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with gratitude, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will protect your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praise, think on these things. Do those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is truly one of my favorite passages of scripture, Seth, but I have not heard it from the modern English version before. So why did you choose this version and translation for our episode this week? I wanted something that was different than we had done previously, and the modern English version aims for what's called formal equivalence, which just means that it tries to render the text from Greek into English as close as possible. Um, so one example, and you'll see this a lot in Bibles, is the way uh, they transfer brothers or brothers and sisters. So uh, this version, the modern English version, just translates it brothers. But the new Revised Standard Version, for example, will translate that brothers and sisters, which I, I do think is more accurate because we know that Paul's not just talking to his brothers here because the next line is, I exhort Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So there he's talking right to two women. So we know that he's not just talking to his brothers, uh, but that is the way that the, the Greek reads, mm. literally at least. So anyway, this is just an, a, a way to try and uh, get us to read something new and something that that tries to render the Greek text really faithfully. You said that you love this portion of scripture. Is there anything new that you noticed, or is there like a part that you always particularly liked? I think for me, my favorite part of this are 
verses 4 through 7. So the part that starts, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice, and ending with, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will protect your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That section is just really kind of cemented in my memory. It's some really important scripture for me. But what stood out for me in this reading is the reminder of where this passage falls in the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. The fact that this is literally immediately following these very specific exhortations and encouragements to specific people just makes me take a step back from kind of how central I hold those scriptures to be. Just say, hey, like these were these were really meaningful to this community in this time first. Before they were meaningful to me, and before I try to think about applying them to all sorts of situations, they were meaningful to Euodia and Syntyche and Clement and these people who are mentioned here that don't have like a larger institution of religion around them. So that just kind of gave me pause. I also appreciated what you exactly said was how there are women named here. There are other women who are mentioned in a group here that are mentioned as co-laborers with Paul in the gospel. Just to reiterate and kind of highlight the tension between passages like this that clearly indicate the leadership of people other than men in the early Christian church alongside other passages, either from Paul or reportedly from Paul, that seem to be a little bit harsher about women too. So in this context, in this community, the Philippians had apparently a lot of people, a lot of women with strong opinions and like strong wills to work, uh, so much so that his lead exhortation to them was for them to start getting along better. (laughs) (laughs) Since we're always trying to ask the question, what's the story? And since we haven't done an epistle before, I just wanted to take a moment to try and think about what's the story behind this epistle in general. Paul writes his letter to the church at Philippi because he's in prison and they send him money uh, basically to sustain him while he's there. Prison around this time doesn't work the way prison does now. You don't get three square meals. People had to provide them for you. Or I guess you could buy them, which is probably why they send Paul the money. But when he writes back to the, the church in Philippi, he's actually founded this church. And it's made up of just a, a really interesting group of people. I think of it like a Roman military retirement home. Once you did your time serving in the Roman army and you, and you survived, they would send you to Philippi and they would set you up with like a house. It's like a pension almost. They sent you up with a house and like a tract of land. So in this community, it's people who have just devoted their life and service to the Roman Empire and its and its warfare. And it's to that group that used to follow the emperor that's now following Jesus Christ that Paul writes this letter. So it's just just like a fascinating group. So I just want to keep that kind of in the back of our mind as we keep reading. Well, that's that makes a few things stand out, certainly. Uh, the fact, again, that women are still in leadership and are holding significant office among 
this group stands out as really unique. Also, letting everyone come to know your gentleness. And then, and then the exhortation towards the end about whatever things are true are honest and just and pure. Like, all these things, there's a real contrast there to the things that those who might have experienced the brutality of Roman war and Roman conquest might have experienced. I love that line at the end. Paul talks about just that, all these things that that they should focus on. And he says, do those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. Yeah. (laughs) Right? I think that's so funny to me. Like, like Paul... Paul is not always the most humble guy, right? He's like No, not at all. Yeah, he's like But he's real confident about himself. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. I I have a really strong memory as well of a Bible teacher in high school who focused on verse seven. We read it as which surpasses all understanding. But we spent like a whole class period talking about the word transcends, which is how that, that line is often uh, rendered i just remember this real distinct image of him standing in front of a, a you know a whiteboard with tons of stuff scribbled everywhere on it just saying the word transcends over and over again um so i i had to stop myself when i was either referencing that or reading it just because i was going to the word transcends so so instinctively i really enjoyed the translation here uh, i think it puts it in an approachable way and and puts it back in the setting of this is like kind of a close to a letter to a group that Paul loved. Yeah. And so it almost adds a layer of depth of meaning to it. Fun fact about the King James version of this passage. We read it as be anxious for nothing or like, don't be anxious about anything at the time that the King James version was produced. The word that we would understand as anxious they use the word careful. Ah, so huh. careful and cautious and anxious were more similar than we understand them now. Hmm. And so the, it would it read, and it might still read, I don't have my King James version in front of me, uh, don't be careful about anything. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. I've got to pause here because we've been going through this and I'm really struggling to understand where your WWIDITPS question came from. It's a good question. It came from from one line in this passage. It talks about the the many and fellow laborers whose names are written in the book of life. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? You're really struggling to come up with a question, okay. weren't you? I was. This is a tough text to come up with of what would you do in this particular situation question for. That's fair. As ridiculous as that is, I do appreciate the thought behind the question. Is there anything else with the story of the text, or do you think we're ready to move on to what's the point? When Paul tells the church at Philippi that they should rejoice in the Lord always, I mean, I think it's kind of unrealistic, and I also just wonder if it's like, if it kind of negates, like, the suffering that they've seen. I don't know. I guess I'm just reading it as, like, aspirational. Like, that's the goal. Right. Right? But, I mean, we all know, I guess, that it's that's extraordinarily difficult. But he's of giving course. them a goal to aim at. 
But again, it's I think too of the passage you know passages in First Thessalonians that are like pray without ceasing, uh, rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances, <laughs> and then think about like Romans eight. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to God's purposes. And it is different for me as someone who has really not suffered a lot in my life to read that and especially to read it onto the situations of people who have suffered and for someone who's in the midst of suffering with other people who are suffering to share that word too. So for Paul, as a prisoner, reaching out to a community that's worried about him, that's offering him support, hearing to rejoice in God. Again, rejoice. Like that attitude coming from him might have been a real word of encouragement for them as they were going through what they were going through as well. But I'm with you. I think the definitive statements about doing these things that are hard to do ever all the time <laughs> is is really more so an aspirational or just kind of this this directional statement. Let your let your life be oriented towards joy and th- thanksgiving rather than a hey don't stop (laughs) (laughs) so with that do you think we're ready to move on to conversation about what's the point i think so i feel like we've we've exhausted this text that's and yet we have and now we have on digging (laughs) (laughs) we have for the purposes of our podcast the line that strikes me as maybe the climax of this section is Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praise, think on these things. That strikes me as just the climax of this letter, especially from someone who's in prison right now. And I guess I wondered what what things are we focusing on that are true and honest, just, pure, lovely, and what things kind of take our attention away from, from that? I think for me, this part of the passage, at least in a lot of spaces where I was growing up, was used in a really shameful or shame-filled mm-hmm. way. It's like if you're not thinking about the things of God you're disobeying God. Hmm. Hmm. And so kind of using this again, like we were talking about with the rejoice in the Lord, always language, like not using this as an aspiration or a direction, but as a imperative, as something that you must do to be in good standing with God and revisiting it now and thinking about it. I do think that thinking about things that are true and honest and just and pure, et cetera, et cetera, that is a good way to live your life. It's good to offer moments of focusing on those things. But I'm also wrestling with the realities that we face and wondering where there is room, at least in this passage that Paul offers, for us to pay attention to the things that are standing in the way of the things that are true and honest Mm -hmm. and just. So when we need to pay attention to the falsehoods and the lies and the injustice and the impurities, is that in line with this? 
is it intention? Is it contradictory to? I think I'm just I'm looking for the nuance that's just not in in this because it's just think on these things yeah. and that's it. It's not think about these things when you need a little break from the world around you or think on these things to take good care of yourself every once in a while. It's just this direction of these are where your mind needs to be focused. And I'm curious where the things that don't fall in those categories, I think elsewhere in scripture, we are to think about hmm. where, where there's space for those or if there's space for them. You talked about how this verse gets turned from gospel into law. Like it gets used to like beat you over the head. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. But what's fascinating to me about it is I don't think there's anything that's specifically theological, that's specifically Christian about what Paul points to. Mm. Right? It's like whatever is honest, whatever is just, whatever is pure. Like I think it's almost a it's almost a focus on on beauty and goodness in general. And I think that can point us back to God. But like he's casting a wide net, I think, with this, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah I definitely agree. And just going back to some of what I was sharing, and I appreciate you saying that, it almost feels like rather than giving an imperative or law. A statement of the law, as you said, Paul is offering an invitation or giving permission to think these ways because of so much of what their lives are centered on is not true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. I love running through that list every time. <laughs> um, but it's just like when you are, again, thinking back to what we were mentioning earlier about Paul being in prison and suffering himself, reaching out to a community that was suffering in some way too because it existed in the heart of the Roman Empire, at the height of the Roman Empire, at a time when being Christian was not a positive thing. Like Thinking about this statement in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, from someone else who is experiencing that pain, is a really powerful invitation. And I want to I want to clarify that distinction. If I'm going to a community that is hurting, if I if I show up at a Black Lives Matter rally after yet another police killing or yet another police officer getting off without any charges because of the ways not that our system is broken, but that our system is set up to protect the police and white folks at the expense of black and brown folks. If I show up to that protest and say, hey, I know you're hurting, but God tells us to think about things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and a good report. So we better start doing that. That is so contradictory to the spirit of Jesus, to the spirit of solidarity and compassion. I can't begin to talk about that. But if from within a suffering community, from within a community that is hurting, someone says, I know we are surrounded by pain, but can you imagine what's just beyond that? I know we've been lied to, but can you imagine a world where truth prevails? I know we are being held down, but can you imagine if justice actually rolled down like waters 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I know we're surrounded by ugliness right now, but can you imagine a world that is simply lovely? That invitation almost serves as an act of resistance to current circumstances that are full of things that are not any of these things in this list and inviting folks to consider the new realities made possible by the reign and realm of God in their midst. I think that's exactly how this letter from Paul would be received from someone who, who is and has suffered and to a community, just like you said, who is and has suffered too. And who's ostracized from Roman military officials. That's really a group of outcasts now. When they were once powerful, right? At least physically so, in Rome. They've lost that privilege and that position. It matters how we think about where Paul is in this. Which I think I, I often lose sight of, unfortunately. Like, I read this decontextualized from Paul's yeah. position in prison. Like, And then I think the, the rejoicing can be, be like a, a clobber text. Like, rejoice, rejoice, right? From someone who's, mm-hmm. who's outside of the suffering, just like you talked about. That was well said. It just feels like, I mean, there's, there's a lot that comes from Paul that is really challenging to my theology. And in some sense, I don't love Paul as a theologian. (laughs) But I think the flaw in that is presuming that Paul is writing like these theological treatises from high up in an ivory tower as an academic. And isn't a person who is traveling the known world to proclaim good news to those who are poor and sick and in need of healing and is offering kind of the foundations of those communities forming and is really again both encouraging and ushering in acts of resistance that get him arrested and beaten and run out of town and thinking about comparisons to people like that today you know, maybe instead of thinking of Paul as some sort of theologian that I want to have an intellectual disagreement with, maybe he's more like a John Lewis or someone someone who's constant speaking against the established powers often gets them in a load of trouble. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, that, that perspective for me is it's honestly like really challenging right now. Because I think my high and mighty seminary education is like, no, I don't like Paul because I disagree with these eight ideas of his. <laughs> when in reality, neither of us would be who we are. And I don't think the church would be who it is and what it is without the work and establishment of this person and all the people, the co-laborers that are mentioned here and go unmentioned too in all these communities i'm with you and that i rag on paul sometimes too hmm. it's easy 
for me to just say, well, you know, Paul's Paul's fine, but he's not Jesus Christ. Right. Which I think is true, but it's easy to use that to dismiss Paul and some of his ideas. It's helpful to me to always keep recontextualizing these letters and keep thinking about how Paul lives and how the the people that he's writing to live and to to just keep reminding myself again and again that he's not writing to me 2000 years later in the United States of America he's not writing these timeless truths to that he thought we're going to make it 2000 years but that he's obviously addressing specific situations which seems like relatively obvious when you think about it being a letter like that's of course how letters work right you know like i usually don't right i don't really send letters but at least in my emails my emails aren't meant to be timeless like it's like usually about a particular thing (laughs) well seth i'm feeling very challenged by revisiting this passage that i thought i knew so well one thing that i do appreciate about paul is he always challenges me I think when I put myself in the shoes or the sandals of the recipients of Paul's letters, it always challenges me to see him differently and to see the world differently and to see God differently. And at least right now I'm feeling challenged to try and look at all the things that are beautiful and lovely and pure and right and all all the positive adjectives that Paul could think of in Greek, right? When he would, when he, like all of those together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we should pray. I think this is a good time to pray too. Loving God, both the church in Philippi and Paul have been beat down, imprisoned, ostracized, and yet they rejoice. Empower us to rejoice in all things without discounting our pain. And empower us to live in, with, through, and for you, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode Jonathan, what story will we tell next week? We are going to take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs> <laughs>